Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Morrison's personal approval went very high, you know, going from the depths of the bushfires to the heights of, of responding to COVID. But the coalition's two-party preferred vote didn't shift much. And it's sort of an enduring mystery about why that happened, why people gave him credit but didn't seem to change their vote. Hello everyone, it's been a huge week, Budget Week in Canberra. I think we're half dead, but we are still with you and you are on Australian Politics Live. I am, of course, Catherine Murphy, Political Editor of Guardian Australia, and I'm with two of my lovely team. To the left of me is a bloke who's going to introduce himself. (laughs) The half-alive Daniel Hurst. (laughs) And to the right of me... The job-ready Paul Carp. The job-ready Paul Carp. We would have Amy with us too, but sadly she is still bringing you Budget Week in 10-minute updates, basically outside the pod cave as we record. But anyway, we thought that it was a good idea now that we have made it till Friday at the end of Budget Week to reconvene and sort of put the events of the last week together and share our reflections of where we think things stand at the end of Budget Week. Folks who follow the full story podcast will have heard our on-the-night observations about the budget on Tuesday night, but now I think we've had a couple of days to think about what the government's bowled up, and we also have the benefit of Anthony Albanese's budget and reply on Thursday. So, Paul, why don't you kick off? You've got some thoughts, I think, about let's start with the budget budget. Let's Rather than Albanese, let's start with what we think about Tuesday night. Well, I I thought it was a a bit of a surprise because the week before Josh Frydenberg had set the scene by saying that, you know, the coalition are not going to worry about debt and deficit. They understand that we're in a recession and you need to spend what it takes to get out of that, at least until unemployment's comfortably below 6%. So we were were ready for a, a, a big spending budget. But then when it came to what the actual measures were, the measures were income tax cuts, which we were expecting, and business tax concessions for for hiring and for purchasing assets. And there wasn't a lot of government spending, you know, where they're the ones actually implementing programs. So it wasn't a traditional big spending budget. 
And I've decided it's the relay race budget because the government gives tax cuts to individuals and and to businesses. They're running the first leg by doing that as fiscal stimulus, but then it's up to households to spend rather than save and up to businesses to hire and to to buy capital equipment to run the other, you know, three legs of of the relay race. And so it's sort of like, to pick up your metaphor, it's kind of like a bat on change. You see Tuesday night as a bat on change between the government and the voters and business. What do you think about the merits of that? Well, I think it's for, you know, the coalition doesn't like big government, so it makes sense that they would try and deliver stimulus that way. They don't want to create uh, programs like pink bats or school halls that they can be attacked for for poor implementation. And it fits with their philosophy that the private sector will be better at knowing, you know, what investments and, and where to invest to get things going. But it does open up the risk that if households save the income tax cuts like they did a lot of the JobKeeper and job seeker payments, uh, or if businesses, even as the economy reopens, they you know don't know whether they're going to roar back into profitability, so they don't buy assets or hire people. It's a, it's a big risk, like that that twenty seven billion dollars for that biggest measure of instant expensing, like won't actually be spent. And it is massive that measure. Troy is eye popping. Daniel, what do you think? Where have you ended up on the budget? Well, I think I think it's right that a lot depends on generating confidence, and we given the uncertainty around we don't know that that confidence will come back. The growth figures, as we've discussed earlier in the week, the growth figures for next year are extraordinarily optimistic and it rests on a bunch of assumptions that may or may not be true. I mean, budgets, it's hard to forecast at the best of times, mm-hmm. but, you know, the Treasury officials in the budget paper sort of put it up in flashing lights and said, domestic and international uncertainty abound. Brackets, we don't really know. So so they they don't know whether next year will come roaring back. And there were some, despite all the big spending, there were some interesting decisions. And, you know, the the trumpeted infrastructure spend, for example, um, 10%, only 10% of the new funds to states and territories will come in the first of the four-year budget cycle. And, you know, as Paul said, if some of these programs like the credit for hiring young workers don't get taken up, they don't get taken up and businesses aren't confident enough to employ their, you know, this this doesn't, this recovery doesn't happen. So I, I do see some sort of curious choices in the way that this has been framed. Put together. Um, what do we think, because obviously a bit of a narrative has built up around basically since Tuesday night as, as people have started to assess the measures more closely, that the budget basically there's insiders and outsiders for want of a better construction in the budget, right? Women ignored. If you're a worker over 35, also not much there for you apart from a tax cut if you happen to be employed. What do you think about all that? Is is that just the sort of reductionist stuff that happens after budgets or is there some merit attached to that? Paul, what do you think? I think there's merit attached to that because uh, the, the measures uh, like instant expensing of assets are designed particularly for capital-intensive industries, and you've had uh, disproportionately women losing their job as the economy shut down in things like services industries, where you know maybe they don't need a hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment or, or whatever they'd rush out and instantly expense. So if you are facing a problem that has a particularly gendered dimension, then perhaps the solution should have paid more attention to uh, which industries were going to take up those measures. 
in terms of older and older and younger workers, the government has a, a reasonable argument in terms of youth unemployment is is scarier because if you if you don't get a job when you're under 35, you'll be on welfare for life, and can argue that by the time you're in your mid 30s, you should have enough skills and experience that that you'll be picked up again without a wage subsidy. So they they do have a reasonable argument there, but it but it is a vulnerability that Labor is trying to exploit. Well, and what and what do you think, Daniel, on that point about insiders and outsiders and older workers and younger workers and all that sort of stuff? What do you think? Well, I think that the the message people would have got from the budget on Tuesday was a lot of business focused incentives and not a lot of sort of what does it matter to me? Like, mm-hmm. I think that it probably will wash over people quite quickly and. It, Certainly, the the sort of discussion has moved on much more quickly yeah, than most yeah, budgets. I think yeah, it's yeah, moved on yeah. from the sort of set piece announcements to sort of what's next, and you know, is this enough? Like, I just don't know whether it landed so effectively. And I'm not, and I I, I do get the impression that people would have heard a lot of technical business incentives and tax cuts that we knew we knew were in the works but were being brought forward that people probably would save at the current time. Yeah, it is It is curious, isn't it? Because I must say that has been a striking feature of this week is that how quickly the budget washed through in the sense of by, obviously it was announced with great fanfare as budgets are on Tuesday night and sonic boom happens and out it goes. But my own observation is that we were sort of trickling out of the budget really by Wednesday afternoon and by Thursday, the Prime Minister was almost exclusively focused in Thursday's question time about setting up defensive strategies for where he anticipated Labor would go in the budget in reply, which is a very short shelf life for a budget that basically sets up a trajectory where your gross debt hits a trillion dollars. Like that's, it's sort of interesting. And I wonder just sort of coming back, whether you guys think perhaps this relates to Paul's point, which is this metaphor of the baton change, right? The relay that perhaps in pushing out the next phase of recovery to the public, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why it's sort of tapered off, that there's this strange sort of outsourcing dynamic in the budget. I, I don't know what you guys think about that. That's my view. I think that's part of the reason why it's sort of that the momentum came out of it so quickly is that we that there is this outsourcing, the response. What do, what do you think? Yeah, because if the government had spent directly on on roads and schools, and it, like you, you could take the cameras down there and say, we're going to build a school hall here, or you know, this is where the superhighway is going to go. But if you're pushing money out the door for businesses to maybe or maybe not hire people, or maybe or maybe not buy a piece of equipment, the businesses are making those decisions now. You can't you, you can't point to a concrete example yet of a job that's been created or, you know, a piece of equipment that's been been purchased and fully expensed mm. and depreciated mm. right out of the blocks. It's a decision yet to be made. Mm. And uh, what and, do you think? And it doesn't, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. They're also pushing ahead with withdrawing the support through JobKeeper yeah. and JobSeeker is still uncertain after December. So it's not as if these are all additional things that come on top. It's yeah. sort of... It's replacing one thing with another thing and it's not clear to me that the net gain will be there and that the confidence will be there. Mm, Um, Particularly on JobSeeker where, as it stands, JobSeeker is due to revert to its old rate after December, Mm -hmm. even though the government says they're inclined to increase it. 
beyond December, based on the facts at the time, that will require an, a, a revision to the budget numbers. Yes. And, and that's, yes. that would hit confidence if that measure was to be cut at the yeah. end of December. Well, well, it, 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 more than confidence. I mean, definitely confidence, but also activity in terms of it, it would have mm. a direct economic income out. Outcome, God, oh, we are we are losing it here slightly, or at least I am. The boys are doing well, but me not so much. But I mean, it, there's a stimulus that the government will withdraw if it reduces the rate of the payment, which is what you're saying, Paul. You want to jump in here? Oh, I'm just going to say how curious it is that they refuse to say until the new year what they're doing with JobSeeker. It really shows that the frame that they come at it from is not the adequacy of the payment. You know, can people get by on this amount of money? It's more how many people are still unemployed and things like that that they're deciding on are sort of more charitably, you'd say that want to know what the labour market dynamic is, but, you know, uncharitably, like, is it a political consideration of how many people are still on it? I it, I think it's poorly explained why they yeah, opted it, for that. It is strange. I mean, as it, look, it's sort of, I guess it's, if we think about the government, it, let's pull out just for two secs on that point, right? If we think about the government, basically since the bushfires and rolling into the pandemic, the government has been sort of in the business of managing uncertainty, like every single day, right? Like that's that's been the job this year in a much more foregrounded way than usual. So perhaps they've become so wired <laughs> for the uncertainty principle that that's why there's there's this sort of rather strange dynamic here about saying, oh, well, we'll look at it at Christmas and then decide or whatever else. It's sort of like, you know, when when things are hard to predict, you don't want to lock into anything too early. So you're sort of doing all this signalling, but in the process, you're compounding uncertainty. You're not actually managing it. So much of their decision-making now is sort of just-in-time decision-making. Like, during the pandemic, they needed to make very quick changes to programs like JobKeeper. And so Labor gave them a lot of latitude by passing legislation that let them make rule changes. But now you've got things like the job maker hiring credit, which is the youth wage subsidy, where the way they're proposing to bring that in is a bill that's basically blank, says the government can create any form of, of yeah, payment. Rules to, to follow. Yeah, rules to follow. And it kind of, it comes from a thinking that they want to make that decision at the last possible moment. They don't want to build all the safeguards in to begin with. They want to decide job seeker after Christmas. They want to decide whether or not the superannuation increase is going to be frozen much closer to when it's supposed to go up. They've become much more used to making the decisions at the last possible minute to preserve maximum flexibility, to put pressure on the opposition to just agree with it. They want to avoid long debates in the community about the decisions. They they certainly want to avoid long debates, but I wonder too, Daniel, whether that's part of Morrison's personality, that he does have this element of his of his prime ministership of maximising flexibility all the time, right? He's uh, shapeshifter. So, well, well, uh, <laughs> to, to, to quote a certain quarter, yes, I know that. No, but I, I mean that it's sort of interesting because obviously the the temperament of the prime minister has a has a profound impact on any government, right? Like how the prime minister functions determines the tempo and the presentation of the government to a large degree, right? So what do we think about this flexibility as strategy thing? Like, (laughs) is it clever genius or do you sense that we might hit a point where flexibility becomes uncertainty, which then creates problems for them in terms of the recovery? Well, I think it makes sense to maintain that flexibility, to, to sort of be nimble, so to speak, and be ready to adjust policies. And that's what he's argued all throughout, that they've 
you know, recalibrated to, you know, to use the buzzword, mm. radically changed policies depending on this, you know, expanding thing. crisis. Yes, yeah. mm. yes. But I think, I think actually what people need now, given the uncertainty that's out there generally about this pandemic and how long it will go for and what the end point is, you, you know, you know, how we get out of it, basically, mm. that actually people probably would like a bit of certainty and a bit more sort of signalling of what comes next. So, less of that just-in-time decision-making and more of the this is the trajectory we're laying out and there's a lot uncertain about the world right now, but this is locked in, mm. this is what we're doing, we're going to give people the confidence they need to plan the bits of their lives that they can plan in despite in, the recession, yeah, despite the crisis. In difficult times. Like I think that now is the time for a bit more certainty to be given to people. Mm, and oh, the budget would have been a perfect opportunity for that. To do that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So, all right, well, there's the budget, 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 and we should note that the income tax and business concessions legislation passed the Senate on Friday and we've still got other budget measures to come, though, like the I call discount job keeper, which is the worker credit thing, and other things, right? So, okay, so there's the budget budget. Let's think about Anthony Albanese, uh, who has obviously been setting up a counterpoint, which landed on Thursday night. Why don't you start this time, Daniel? What did you think of that? Well, I think Labor needed to get some ideas out there, some clear policies out there to sort of get attention. It's been hard for them to get attention and certainly going big with something on childcare is a very big way to do that and it's, you know, people have been talking about it in the last, you know, since the speech, since Albanese's speech. I think that childcare is an area where, you know, you'll have families talking about it and weighing up the impacts on them. So I think it's an effective way to get the focus back on a Labor agenda Mm -hmm. from his perspective when a lot of the focus has been on the government and it's been on national cabinet, hasn't been a lot of space for opposition. No, exactly. And, and he, he reintroduced himself, didn't he, Murph? Like yeah. he, he went yeah. right back to the beginning with the log cabin Log story. cabin. A uh, lot, of, lot of log cabin, yeah. Be, because so much of his term as opposition leader has been in the pandemic with the government with all the attention, he had to reintroduce himself to voters and tell tell his story and, and, where, and what, what his values are and where he comes from. And... Then, yeah, a, a, a few announcements trying especially to pick up on omissions or losers, the people who didn't win in the in the budget on Tuesday because Labor were in trouble going into this week because the government had removed this restriction on themselves about spending, which is, is very dangerous for the opposition. Austerity would have been a good platform to beat them over the head with and, and win an election on. And suddenly now they've got to make different arguments about the quality of what's being spent on. But not having enough measures for households created an opportunity then for Albanese to come in and make the reply about childcare. Mm. And it's childcare... As as you both say, as Daniel says, but and you both say, it's sort of it is a it is the ultimate, you know what what we used to say the barbecue stock stopper, the dreadful bloody cliche. It does obviously make people sit up and take notice. It's kitchen. It's it's something that's important to all families and families. You know, a lot of families use childcare services, and there is this kind of frustration. I think among women that Albanese's picking up and trying to surf about their place in the economy, their place in society, all of that sort of stuff. So there's all that dimension. But there's also the kind of build stuff dimension too to the budget in reply. I'm not giving everybody a pop quiz about what the measure is, but what do you think about that in terms of framing, right? As well as childcare, there's a significant 
announcement of a government-owned corporation which will roll out infrastructure in the energy sector using Australian steel and Australian workers, brackets, as long as it's consistent with our trade obligations, close brackets, right? What's that all about? Well, the coalition's budget was a private sector does it better, let's let business get on and do it. The the $20 billion for rewiring the nation and improving transmission is is the opposite extreme. It's, It's government does it better, especially when it's a big expensive monopoly, especially in circumstances where those investments aren't being made because of uncertainty about energy policy. Curiously, it comes after a a backflip on the NBN from the coalition as well that Labor took that government does it better approach when they were rolling out the NBN. And shortly before the budget, the coalition brought fibre closer to the premises, which could be seen as a bit of a concession to, to, to Labor's approach to it. So, yeah, they're trying to solve a big problem, which is that the grid isn't in the right shape for delivering renewable energy. And they're going to do it more directly rather than waiting for someone else to. And if you think about it too, either of you, any thoughts? Like if you think about Labor's problem with climate and energy policy, which is that it looks too much as though it's in the thrall of what the bobbleheads on Sky News at night would call inner city elites. How do you how do you see that measure in the budget reply? And that's obviously, like, that's not a generation policy like or even an energy policy. It's just one element of how you might fix a problem. But viewing that in the climate and energy conundrum that Labor has of having a, you know, a disconnection between its objectives to reduce emissions and blue-collar workers in traditional industries, how do you see that as a, as a circle-squaring exercise? Well, it does, does certainly square the circle. I think Albanese was promoting as part of it the message of steel that would be used in building this stuff, you know, manufacturing the workers whose employment would be supported through this, both the transmission announcement and the manufacturing announcement. I think the speech kind of was attempting to look forward focused. Mm-hmm. Childcare, this is the modern workforce support we need, the modern workforce participation measure we need, and the transmission announcement talking about supporting the transformation in the energy mm-hmm. system. But there were those nods to the traditional industries, the traditional workers, the manufacturing the workers that Labor needs to win back. Mm. Well, the coalition is you know, increasingly trying to peel away from them. So, yeah. while, while Mark Butler and Joel Fitzgibbon are having an argument about whether or not they should have a medium-term target, Anthony Albanese needs to flip the switch from saving the planet makes you feel good to renewable jobs are real jobs in comparison to you know coal, which is in decline, and, and the gas pipelines and whatnot. So yeah. that's the, the switch he's trying to flick. Yeah, this is why I wanted to draw out all these elements. So, okay, then taking a big breath and thinking about the respective offerings and where we're up to in the year and all of that sort of stuff, what do we think about how, I mean, obviously this is ridiculous and sort of crystal ball stuff because we don't have the benefit of any scientific information in terms of how the community might respond to these issues, but I'm interested in both your thoughts about which is the stronger pitch in the current environment, a sort of outsourcing budget, right? We, the government, are giving you your opportunity, business households, to do your bit, right? I mean, it's bizarre to say that given how much they're spending, but the government pulls back, right, and says over to you guys. 
Morrison's been telling us for some weeks he wants a private sector recovery. Looks like he wasn't lying. So there's that versus Albanese saying, look, certain set of values got us through the pandemic. Governments have transformational power. That's what we learned during the pandemic, relearned during the pandemic. Here's a couple of ideas that demonstrates how governments have transformational power if they lean into being a government rather than sit back and do the outsourcing. What do we think about those relative pitches and thinking about it through the frame of the year? Well, I just think the downside risk of the government's outsourcing budget is much greater than the downside of the the government uh, uh, of Labor's idea of the government having a bigger role, because Labor opens itself up to the attack that it's spending too much, which is particularly ineffective at a time that you know a coalition government is is going to reach a trillion dollars of public debt. So. Quite a small downside in comparison to the downside risk of the outsourcing private sector and households have to do everything budget, which is that not enough stimulus is delivered and that we stay in recession for longer. So that would be my comment on it. The other thing is just if people come at it purely from a what's in it for me perspective, depending on what other policies Labor announces between now and the election, they might have more latitude to to offer more concrete things to people. But then, what do you think, Daniel? Are you sort of are you? Do you have a similar view, or do you have a different view? Similar in that the latitude point of things. We talked before about how Morrison sort of keeping himself room to move. Yeah, I think Labor's got the most room to move at the moment because it's, it's a budget reply. They've thrown a few ideas out, but really the the pressures on the government for for the government to show its strategy starting to work. Like you know the delivery test is there for the government. Labor's just using the speech as an opportunity for for Labor to open a conversation about what a future government would do. But really, I think that, you know, in the months ahead, the higher risk is on the government that some of these measures, you know, slow to start, the uncertainty we discussed earlier, changes in potential assumptions. Like, I just think Labor's pitch would have got some attention, but things move on. There's a bit more flexibility for them as they frame their policies, whereas the government's banking a lot on, on, on a strategy working, strategy working yep. and we will see before the election, which is due late next year, I think, <laughs> yes. uh, keep we, <laughs> with we the hope. proviso that, we hope. that maximum flexibility being allowed there. You know, that there will be time to see whether it works and whether the government needs to revamp its strategy again. Okay. Like, I, just, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is the government is the government and they're the ones that heat is on now. Okay. I'll, uh, I, I don't have any substantial disagreement with what either of you have said, but I want to throw a couple of ideas by way of rebuttal. You know, I'm third speaker for the negative or whatever I am in this session. <laughs> no, just think about this, right? I don't have a substantial disagreement with either of your diagnostics on this, but then think about Let's turn this around slightly and think about a couple of things. One, we're still in a crisis. We don't know when we'll get out of it. There is a natural advantage for incumbents who are broadly competent in in such environments. Second point, I myself think the government's budget has a very uh, sharp eye to politics and to the electoral cycle, and a fistful of dollars is always popular. People very, I was going to say piously, that sounds rude, but people uh, people always tell pollsters, people tell pollsters, oh, no, I much prefer services to tax cuts, and they vote for, for parties that give them tax cuts, right? So so that proposition, 
Oh, God, there was a third, and I've totally forgotten what it is. But related to that second one, though, is that a quirk of the tax cuts is that a fair whack of it comes in July next year. Yeah. If you're earning forty eight to $90,000, the one-year extension of the $1,080 low and middle-income tax offset, that hits in July next year. We didn't have the tax cut for the first four or five months of the financial year, and it's backdated to to July, but the the payment that you get reflecting that cut backdated to July comes next year in July. a handy moment, let's just say five minutes before an election. Anyway, just a thought to bear in mind, Daniel, what do you think by just with my couple of counterfactuals, does that shift your analysis of where we're at? Well, I think you're right about the the incumbency being, you know, a force in times of uncertainty. It sounds like a cop-out, but we just don't know what next year is going to be like. That surely would be part of the considerations. I've just remembered the third because you prompted me. The third thing, right, let's end on this thought and what we think about this thought, right? This government, I can't really explain to you how and why it's happened, but has developed a minor mastery in being an opposition in power. Like they are very good at being an opposition in power. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean not much sticks to them right? And they are reasonably adept at things that are going wrong, always being someone else's fault or Mm. someone else's doing, right? This government, and it sort of relates to the incumbency point, right? Like incumbency is a plus, but how long as a government do you, you get away with the shtick of being an opposition in power? And do we see anything, like sort of going back to both of your diagnoses, which are sort of broadly similar about the downside risk is for the government, right? Like the government has rolled out a plan. It will either work or not and be demonstrated to work or not over the next 12 months. Do we think that we might finally be reaching an age or a a time in this government where they are a government in government and, and people may judge them on their record? What do you think? It's kind of a massive imponderable, I know, but what do you think? Governments should always be judged well, well, on the record. But, uh, yes. but I think, I mean, we've got some state elections coming up, including Queensland. It'd be interesting to see how incumbency plays out there. You are right that the government does seem to manage to brush off these various scandals, the questions over handling of aged care, a lot of scandals like Paul's been covering diligently throughout the sports rorts, for example. But I mean, it's hard to see, you know, things haven't really stuck to date. Mm. I guess it depends how late in the year next year the election is. And, you know, I think think the later it is, I think the later it is possibly the the more time people have had to sort of... Really get a look at For want of a better term, adapt to the new COVID normal economy and world and um, be more prepared to potentially toss out a government mm. if they think that they haven't delivered. Haven't delivered, yep. On, on incumbency and the opposition in power, uh, effect, I'd say it's hard for Labor to create an its time effect because the government has renewed by changing leaders yeah. and miraculously not been penalised by voters in the same way that Incredibly. Labor were for Rudd and Gillard. Yeah. But that said, Morrison's personal approval went very high, you know, going from the depths of the bushfires to the heights of, of responding to COVID. But the coalition's two-party preferred vote didn't shift much. And it's sort of an enduring mystery about why that happened, why people gave him credit but didn't seem to change their vote. My personal view is it might be because 
they started doing very uncoalition things like spending on on JobKeeper. So I think that the closeness of the contest, if we assume that those are correct rather than just noise and, and, and incorrect, means that there is still opportunity to make stuff stick to them, even though, yes, the track record so far has been like near perfect Teflon. Mm, yes. Well, anyway, all of us over this half an hour have <laughs> basically come to many conclusions and we still have all many questions, I think, is probably the way to wrap up this conversation. Thank you very much for sticking with us through Budget Week and reading all of the coverage, uh, the live coverage and consuming us in our various forms trying to bring you these facts. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer producer of this show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard who cuts the show and we will be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.